0: afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I am awfully glad that today we're going to spend a little extended version of Guy Talk, which is one of my happy hours of the week, one of my times I get to hang with my buds, and we talk about things that are important, and we love your questions. So if you have a question for my power panel today, please send it over. The text line is open just for you. 877-933-2484. Again, 877 933 2484. My power panel today is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. Gentlemen, welcome.
1: It is always good to be with you, Bill.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. Well, the questions are already coming in, so let's get into uh, guy talk or guys who talk. All right, here's a question, uh, and I like this one. What is a sinner? Is it a moral designation or a relational word, or maybe both?
1: Well, it certainly encompasses both in the sense that sinner is someone who is alienated from the will of the Lord, so we're separated. But also, sin depicts what we do to one another. And so there's a moral aspect to it. And that's why, you know, the Lord didn't give us the Ten Commandments simply so that we could have a relationship with Him. Paul says that's not how you get the relationship, but so that we could have a healthy relationship with one another. The way to have the relationship with the Lord was really an understanding the whole thing from Abraham through Jesus for us now is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's both, I believe, at the same time.
2: Mm. Nicely done, Tom Paris. Jeff? That is a good answer. I like that both idea because it kind of encompasses what I was thinking when the question came. It's It's a positional title, Of a person. Uh, Pastor Tom started with that we are separated from God. Sinners are separated from God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. Uh, They don't have a relationship with God. Uh, So they are still in Adam, uh, apart from, not reconciled to God, but apart from God. And so when God describes someone as a sinner, he is in Scripture. It, it is describing someone who does not have a relationship with Christ, because as soon as someone does put their faith and trust in Christ, they receive that divine forgiveness from God, and they become what Scripture calls a saint. So you are—there's only two types of people in this world. You're either a sinner or you're a saint. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the rub. The, the, the latter part of what Tom was saying is saints still sin sometimes. But God no longer counts their sins against them. They've separated their, He has separated their sin as far as the east is from the west. He remembers it no more. And they are now a saint in his eyes. So positionally, before you're saved, you're a sinner. After you're saved, you are a saint.
1: Exactly. It's interesting because on Sunday morning, coming from a Lutheran tradition, we always have some form of confession of sins. It's just built in. And But when I preface that, and I've done this many different ways, I, t- I will tell them this. If you're an unbeliever and you're here, you're really welcome. And you can do the confession too if you want to know Jesus. But if you know Jesus already, you're not confessing to get into a right relationship with him. You're mm-hmm. now confessing because you're living a thankful life for all he's done for you, and you want to be just like him. And when we get that in our head, it's amazing how Freeing that it is for people and how we take risks that we never thought we'd take before, because we 're not worried about how good we are. we are thankful for how good Jesus is mm-hmm.
0: so when Jesus uh, came and entered humanity, I think there was some views about sinners as being the heathen people or the especially sinful people or even women with a bad reputation, like it says in Luke seven. So doesn't he show up and say, no, 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 we've all missed the mark who is outside of a relationship?
2: Who's ever broken one of the least of these commands has broken them all. So I think you're absolutely right. You are either positionally in Christ or not in Christ. So we we tend to, we've talked about this before, because so many people think God grades on a curve, right? Well, at least I'm better than the guy down the street. And that's not how he grades. His standard is is perfection. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, no one can ever be perfect. And so the only way we can is through faith when he imputes his righteousness on the believer so that now they are a saint. Mm
1: -hmm. One thing that might be helpful is, and I always try to take the scriptures and put them in the most practical terms I can. That's what I love about this show because that's what we're doing. But when you talk about sinner— when you think about it, it means that we are morally and spiritually bankrupt. We don't have anything to offer back. It's just not there because it's not in us. That makes us alienated from the Lord. But in John 17, Jesus defines eternal life as knowing now the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So it's in their relationship that all of that changes. And now we are his saints or his people. So it's not to put somebody down that they're a sinner. That's where we all started. The issue is, do we come to know the one who turns us into saints? Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, a comment came in, please talk about sinners in the gospel. And for some reason, I'm thinking of a passage in Matthew where the night he was betrayed, uh, he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, the world. I mean, it, he's going to be delivered into those those Gentiles, those dogs, those pagans, those ones who are separated from God. I mean, if you go through Scripture and look at all of the different ways that the lost are described in the Bible, they're described as sinners, as slaves to sin, as ungodly, as wicked, as fools, guilty, uh, ungodly, separated from God. Here's one. Your father is the devil. Jesus said to the, mm. some of the religious leaders who didn't know God at the time. I, I don't know that that's the best way to start an ev- evangelistic conversation <laughs> with someone today. You know, hey, your father is the devil. But that's true. You are still of the world. And when you come to God and, and, and confess your sins to God, he is faithful and just to forgive you of all unrighteousness. And now you are his, his possession.
1: I find it interesting. If you look at the New Testament closely, even on the day of the resurrection, the, the apostles weren't sure what was really going on. They really weren't connecting. They didn't believe Mary and Martha. and I mean, they didn't believe Mary and some of the other people. And then even when Jesus appeared, you know, you got people named Thomas, which I think is a great name. But what they did immediately <laughs> is, you know, show me your hands and show me, you know, side. Or Jesus said, touch me. I think the key is the day of Pentecost, On the day of Pentecost, you see a dramatic transformation in the believers when the power of the Holy Spirit came upon them. And Jesus said, look, unless I go away, you know, the Spirit's not going to come. That's what all of us are living for. We live for the power of the Lord working through us each and every day. And that's why I advise everybody, every Christian, start the day by saying, Jesus, I again affirm today you're my Lord and Savior. I want to live for you, and I want your power to flow through me to bless others. And when we live that way, it is incredible the opportunities the Lord gives us. Mm-hmm. Nicely done. If you have a question for Guy Talk today,
0: text it over, 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, what does it mean to pray, thy will be done? It seems that thy will be done is asking God to do what he desires, yet we always come to him with our desires. So how do we uh, reconcile those two?
1: It's one of the biggest obstacles in the universe, because, you know, like I've always said, nobody ever runs into the throne room of heaven and shouts out, guess what? (laughs) I mean, the Lord knows everything. The Lord also knows what we can't see. And I think real maturity in Christ, and I think new Christians especially, uh, as they begin to pray, you know, go with the Lord, Lord, I need more money, Lord, I need a better job, Lord, I need this and that. That's fine. The Lord's very patient with that. But the goal is... Is when that prayer finally turns into thy will be done or saying, Jesus, regardless of what I'm asking for, you do in me what you know is best to make me just like you. And when we get to that point, I think that's where the Lord has used some of the great missionaries, evangelists, uh, people of the past to change this world.
2: Yeah. You know, in the back of the book, it, it says, come Lord Jesus, right? This call, this maranatha, come Lord. Well, he's going to come in his timing, uh, when he is ready and and he's going to sound the trump and the end is going to is going to come and and so when we're praying it we're not saying you know hey we've got an idea of when it's going to happen or when it should happen we're saying that it is going to happen because you've declared it's going to happen and won't it be great when that day comes i think it's the same thing when you say thy kingdom come it's basically saying come lord jesus Um, You know, when you look around the world, I'm sure every Christian at one time or another has said, man, Lord, now would be a good day for you to come and take us home. And uh, that, I think, is what that prayer is all about.
1: I Um, I said that in the last 20 minutes, so I'm with you. (laughs) Nicely
0: done, Tom Parrish. All right, we'll take a little break. When we come back, lots more Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk. Let me know what questions you have for them today. 877 933 2484. Some already great questions are coming in, and we can't wait to get back to them. Be right back. Oh, life can be filled with distractions. I saw a survey that said the average person will look at their phone 320 times a day. This Lent, let's take a moment to step away from all the distractions And let's read the Bible together. You can start this wonderful program called Reading the Bible Together with Us, and you can learn how to better connect with God through His Word and through studying ancient disciplines practiced by Jesus Himself. You can sign up for this free study now at myfaithradio.com. Let's spend this season of Lent focusing on our Savior on the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and what fuels our minds and our hearts to be more devoted followers of Jesus. Again, sign up for the free study now at myfaithradio.com. My horn, So it's time to go forward. Thank you for listening to Guy Talk today. I'm glad you joined us. We've got some great questions coming in, thanks to you, because that's where we get our questions from. Anything you would like to ask the power panel, send them on over 877-933-2484. Gentlemen, let's talk revival. There's quite a buzz going on right now in our country with what's going on at Asbury uh, Seminary. And what is revival and what marks it? Who wants to start? Tom Parrish, I'm looking at you.
1: You know, I've been researching this for a long, long time. And we've had three centuries of this that go on, three great awakenings. That's another term used for revival. What I have discovered, and I've been doing some research the last couple of days, and I think I'm going to share this with my congregation. Uh, I looked at all the different characteristics of revival, what people have seen, what they have. And I came up with a few things that might be helpful and I'll just go through them briefly, or we can talk about each one individually. So this is a compilation. Number one, revivals are hallmarked by an intense awareness of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, with an intensity focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. It really He comes through in a very strong way through people. Even people that are, that are casual with church, they find Jesus in their lips. They want to confess him. Uh, a second thing is, out of that, then, there is a growing passion to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. You know, sometimes we can intellectually call Jesus Lord, but not follow him. Uh, I think the kids at Asbury are discovering this real deep desire to follow Jesus and walk with him. Third thing is an acute sensitivity to sin and personal repentance. Uh, People get up. I mean, I've never had in my church somebody get up and confess the adulterous affair they were currently having and ask for forgiveness. Now, In revivals, some of that happens. I mean, it goes that deep. I've had people privately confess that, but publicly? Wow, that's pretty incredible. But these people are compelled. There's a real jealous concern for the truth. They really want to know what the Word of God says, not in an intellectual way, but in a heartfelt manner so that it begins to change the way they look at life. Uh, Prayer is big. You look at the videos at Asbury. These people are singing and in prayer all the time. Prayer is a driving force because we're communicating with the Lord. Um, morality changes. People all of a sudden discover that their relationships are not what the Lord wants. And people will come out of that Asbury Seminary um, and, and say to their boyfriend or girlfriend, we can't do what we've been doing. We have to either get married or we've got to go our separate ways. And that's a pretty powerful thing to have happen. Loyalty to the church intensifies. People want to be part of the body of believers. Uh, That intensifies with it. Just a few more, an extended realization of unity. Suddenly I discover I need these other people. I need them because they are the body of Christ. And there's a rich passion for uh, what a lot of people say is evangelism. People really want to start winning souls. And instead of talking about it or just looking for a program, they find themselves spontaneously Calling people, going out, talking to them, sharing the gospel, and seeing a result. And one final thing that seems to be pretty common is that the revival, no matter how long it goes, uh, let's say this revival goes on for six weeks, eight weeks, or whatever, like some of the past revivals. When that revival ends, the hallmark of a real revival is that ministries will come out of that from people we never thought would start a ministry, who now have a vision from the Lord. And that's really what happened in the the first, the second, and the third Great Awakening in America. That's where our hospitals came from. That's where our orphanages came from. That's where Shelters for the Poor came from, taking care of single moms. All of those things came out of that. So those are at least 10 characteristics I found. I'm sure there are more, but those are the big ones. Nicely done, Tom Parrish. Jeff, any thoughts?
2: Well, one of his points was uh, personal repentance. I think it was was his third or fourth. Point. and my understanding is is that this current revival uh, worship revival that's going on at Asbury started with a message on personal repentance repentance for the lost unto salvation but also repentance of the church to holy living to live out that called out life that we are called to live we're called to live different from the world the and, and what's going on there is fascinating my understanding is this happened at this location back in the 70s or 80s or sometime a while back in the 70s. and it's going to be in the 70s yeah it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes and what comes of this right so if if we if it just is some singing for a couple weeks or however long it lasts and that's it i think an opportunity is is could be missed this is a great opportunity for the eyes of the nation to see what God is all about. And it's already being reported around the country on many different media outlets of what's going on there. And uh, this could be a spark of, like Tom said, some of the great revivals of of history in our country. There has been a number of them. And uh, who knows where this is going to go, but uh, it's exciting to watch.
1: It really yeah. is.
0: It's thrilling. And when believers, again, start to have this, vi- this new vision, I think through revival, they can't help but to share their message of hope with unbelievers, and I think that's a that 's a a distinct difference in
1: a revival is you cannot shut people up when it comes to sharing their faith well, you
0: know, back in so the
1: seventies so when the this revival took place, I was a very young man, but I remember people that were part of that who literally told me uh some of them went to the seminary I went to I met them elsewhere in Bible studies that what they would never have done. In sharing the gospel with their neighbor or their family or whatever else before it changed their outlook completely to where they wanted to share, and they couldn't shut up.
2: You know, in Acts, there's this scene where a couple of the apostles are brought before the authority, and they're basically told, we do not want you to speak in this name of Jesus anymore. And fortunately, they had kind of a guy who defended them that said, hey, you guys better watch it. If this is from God, there's nothing that is going to stop this, and you do not want to be opposed to God. So they they had him beat him beaten, and then they they let him go. Uh, but when they were told not to speak in this name, the their response was just amazing, and it should be every Christian's response. They said, "We cannot help, but speak about what we have seen." And heard, and that should be our testimony as Christians. We should not be able—you you should not be able to keep us quiet about what we have—we haven't seen and heard it like the disciples, but we know it, and we've 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 believed it. And that is the testimony that Christ came and died for sin, and rose again, and there's life offered in His name. And we
1: should not help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Well, I'm not excited about taking a beating, Jeff. But what I have discovered, when I was in Bangladesh and met with these three young Muslim men who had all met Jesus in dreams, each one of them had been beaten severely by their neighbors, by their family. They had all lost their jobs. They, they were rejected by their family. I know one of them was eventually martyred, and yet I asked them, is it worth it? And they looked at me with this strange look, like, what's wrong with you? You know, to even ask that question, and they said, basically, of course it's worth it. You know, the beating is nothing compared to the knowledge that we have that we are forgiven and have eternal life and we have inner peace.
2: Mm. And, you know, I think the story, I think it's the story where it says that they, they left rejoicing, knowing that they had felt that, that they had been worthy to suffer on account of his name.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I feel that what way after council meetings.
2: Yeah, there
1: you go. <laughs> so you guys are on fire today.
0: I'm glad I served caffeine. I really am. Oh, yeah. Hi, Bill. That's right. Bill's yeah. here. You're the Yeah. yeah, yeah. You we're worked up. Salman Rushdie said, when you're young, you have to fake wisdom. When you're old, you have to fake energy. Yep.
1: Hmm. Yep. But I love it. You know, at my old age, the Lord is still giving me more energy than I've ever had. And I'm, I mean that. I mean, yeah, no, it's, I've it's got great. bad feet, but I'm still ready to go. Yeah. All
2: right. You know, when you're working in the Lord, it's easy. It's not work.
0: No, he gives
2: you the Agreed. strength, he lifts you up, and he is the one bearing the fruit in your life. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, if you're doing what he's called you to do, uh, there should be joy in the service to the Lord.
0: Amen to that. All right, what do you think, do angels have
2: free will? I do think that angels have free will. I think that the beings that God has created, whether it be men or angels, Uh, are made like God in the sense that they have a a person, a a persona, a free will. They can choose. And I think for angels, we actually see this in scripture where scripture indicates that a third of the angels followed Satan in his rebellion. When he said in Ezekiel, it says, I will, no, Isaiah says, I will set my throne above that of the most high God. Um, Satan wanted to rule the place. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to set his throne above God. And, of course, his rebellion was squashed, and he was cast down to earth. And Scripture indicates that he took a third of the angels with him. So, um, so yes, I believe angels had had a free will to decide, which side are you on? And I think they've chosen, and a third followed Satan.
1: I think it's a good word. I was looking at this the other day. Think about it for a minute. We have been given the gift of free will. That free will enables us to decide— When we encounter the Lord, and it's his work in us, we encounter him, if we will follow or not, he gives us that freedom. We have the free will to make good and bad choices. It's all there. The angels also have that free will. And you're right, one-third of them rebelled against the Lord. And I'm sure that many of them would like to change that, but they have set their lot for eternity because they have aligned with Satan. You and I need to set our eternity now by choosing to follow Jesus.
2: You know, at the end of the book of Joshua, he says to Israel, who is always wavering back and forth, right, between God and then false gods, and uh, and he says, choose this day who you will serve. And he says, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. If you remember Elijah, how long will you waver between the, the two? If, if Baal is God, worship him. But if God is God, worship Israel. Him. And so they set up these altars, and they said, let's do a little test here, shall we? You call on your gods, I'll call on the God of heaven and earth. And guess whose God answered? The God of heaven and earth. And he consumed uh, his altar completely, and then he actually had all the false prophets killed uh, after that experiment. But uh, it's, it's, again, it's this picture that decide, you choose, use your free will. If God is God, worship him.
1: There's an interesting story and of course, it's it's a fictional story, and I'll come back to it after we take a break.
0: All right, Tom Parrish, you don't lose your train of thought because I want to hear this story. You are listening to the Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, which means all you do is send a question over. We'll do our very best to answer it. Eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. Again, eight seven seven nine three three two four eight four. And my power panel today is Jeff Verdorn and Pastor Tom Parish. Again, that number one more time, 877-933-2484. It is the afternoon, and I am Bill Arnold, and I'm awfully glad to have my uh, friends uh, gather today for Guy Talk or Guys Who Talk, where we take your questions, we try to answer any question you send over, we do our very best, 877-933-2484. Maybe you had a discussion in a Bible study this week, and a topic came up, and you were discussing it, and you thought, hmm, I'd like to get more information on this. We will do our best to answer that. And, or maybe there's a question you've had for your own pastor that you just haven't had the courage to ask. These guys will take it. So, 877 933 2484. All right, gentlemen, uh, were Jesus's half brothers, James and Jude, considered to be apostles and why?
1: Well, James had a pretty big, you know, I mean, he was head of the church in Jerusalem. I mean, when they had the, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, he was the spokesman. So I don't know if the other apostles called him an apostle. I'm not even sure they called themselves apostles as much as followers of Jesus. But historically, looking back, they would fall into that category. But to what that means in detail of an apostle, the Bible doesn't give us enough information.
2: Okay. Yeah, we kind of have a, the, we have the big James, we have the little James, or the James, yep. the, lesser. Mm-hmm. James the Lesser, and uh, there is actually some confusion about who is who, and whether it's the same James as the the brother, or the, the son of Mary, the actual son of Mary, uh, meaning James. Um, I think it is, I think that, that James, uh, that you just talked about, the Jerusalem James, the author of the book of James, the brother of Jesus, is uh, his his brother, or what? Oftentimes it's called his half brother um or whatever, so yeah, I think that is is the is James now what's interesting about it is that they didn't seem to believe him right away, right? No. So remember that nobody a prophet in his own town has no honor right Jesus says the it's hard to believe that this guy that you grew up with is the actual messiah is God in the flesh. that seems impossible, but to his credit, uh he did. Then believe and follow Christ. And uh, as tradition says, um, I can't remember exactly how James died, but I think 11 out of the 12 apostles, or or 10 out of the 11, uh, excluding Judas, obviously, uh, were martyred for their faith. So uh, it cost them everything to follow Christ.
1: The fact that James and Jude called Jesus the Messiah to me is the biggest authentication of the gospel message there is because I have worked with families all my life and I don't know any brother or sister that would ever claim that their older brother or sister is the Messiah or believe that somehow they have a more of a divine power than anybody else. So for that to happen, and Jesus wasn't even raised in a priestly family. You know, he basically was raised in Nazareth, and and he worked to whatever it was, carpentry or whatever profession that really was. The point is they came after Jesus rose from the dead to realize, hey, our brother was much more than we thought, and I don't know what they went through But by the time James is at the head of the church in Jerusalem, it tells me they've come to fall on their knees before their own brother and call him Lord and Savior.
0: Good answer, Tom Parrish. All right, gentlemen, let's open our Bibles to James chapter (laughs) 1.
2: Did you plan that?
0: No, I didn't. James chapter 1, verse 12, it talks about receiving the crown of life, which God gives to those who love him. What does this mean? And if or how does it relate to baptism?
2: Relates to baptism? I no, a, no.
0: If if or how it does. It
2: may not. Okay. Yeah. So there are, there's actually a number of crowns described in Scripture, the crown of righteousness, the crown of life. Uh, I, I'm trying to think of the other ones right off the top of my head mm-hmm. here, but there's five different crowns. I've got a list someplace, and I've taught on this. There's a question about how many and what type of crown believers get. I actually believe that every Christian receives one crown. I don't, I've don't. i never seen a person wearing more than one crown on their head, so I think the crown that we get as believers in Christ uh, is one crown. It's just described five different ways in Scripture, but I think it's all describing the one crown. Uh, so here it's the crown of life. Well, who has life but those who have believed on the on the Lord Jesus Christ, he who has the Son has life. Uh, the other one is the crown of righteousness and the crown of glory. Well, who's righteous? Who is going to be glorified? Uh, all believers are. So I think it's actually one crown. I believe we get our crown at the judgment seat of Christ that's described in scripture. And uh, because w- When we see the crowns, the 24 elders in the book of Revelation, which I think in in a way represents the church that is now in heaven, who's now received their crowns, what do they do with their crowns? Well, they lay them at the feet of
1: Jesus. Absolutely.
2: And so I think that's in recognition that God is rewarding us. That's what the Bema seat is all about. The judgment seat of Christ is where God rewards us for the work that we did in the body. And some want to make a a big thing about some are going to be rewarded more, some are going to be rewarded less. That's true. But in the end, we are taking our reward and we are casting it at the feet of Jesus. I think in recognition that the righteous works that we did while on earth are actually through the power of Christ working in and through us as the true vine who actually is the one who bore the fruit.
1: I like that. And I agree with you. And one of the worst things that ever happened to me, I was overseas, and when I was taken by the missionaries to a women's group, these were Muslim women, and they were going to greet me as this big Westerner from across the sea. And the woman, one woman was appointed to come over and give me flowers, and when she got within about five feet of me, she threw herself on the floor in front of me and put her head on my feet. It was the worst moment of my life, because I didn't deserve that. And being a representative of Jesus... I know where the crowns are supposed to go, and that's not me. And uh, that was a very difficult situation, but it reminded mm. me, there's only one place to cast your crown, and that's in front of Jesus.
2: Amen. You know, he says that the Lord is our reward and our portion, right? Yep. So every single person in Christ, I believe, will get a crown, but in the end, our greatest reward is Christ himself. Yep.
0: All right. Let me know what your questions are. These are some awfully good questions coming in. 877-933-2484. 877-933-2484. Here's a question, gentlemen. What is the proper way to view multiple wives in the Bible? Trouble.
1: <laughs> it's stop, you- take, stop taking calls. We've got a winner. <laughs> Well, you look at King David, how well did that work out for him? Look at Solomon, how well did that work out? didn't work out too well even for Abraham with Hagar. The bottom line is, and Jesus said in the New Testament, the original design is one man and one woman who become one flesh for a lifetime. Now, there were multiple wives, and the whole culture was filled with that. But I don't think it was a good environment, and I don't think it was very satisfying because... There's no way to really get to know your spouse under those conditions. I mean, Solomon had, what, 300 wives and 700 concubines? Like I've always said, that's where name tags come from. Because when they walked in, he had no idea who they were. Because that is not the way God originally designed it. But for whatever reason, the Lord tolerated that up to a point, and you begin to see that fade out. And by the New Testament, we're down to one man, one woman.
2: Yeah and while he tolerated it he never prescribed it right, right. Uh, they were living more like the world i think than than uh, than god's design for their lives and uh, so i don't I, god has never de- there are there are some religious systems out there that say that god wants us to have multiple wives so on polygamy no 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 one man a man shall leave his father and his mother and he will cleave who his wife, his one wife. Um, So I think that's clear in scripture. But uh, yeah, I think some people look at this passage uh, in Matthew, I believe it's in Matthew, where it says that the resurrection, uh, we will be like the angels. We will neither marry nor given in marriage, uh, but we'll be like the angels in heaven. And some people will think, well, will I not remember? What what, what about my spouse? My spouse I've lived with my whole life. Isn't that a special relationship? And I do not, I believe that the relationships we have on earth will continue in the next life. In other words, God will not wipe away our memory of our relationships. My parents will always be my parents. My children will always be my children, even in glory. I think what this passage means is that once we're in glory, we will no longer have children. There's no more reproduction. We will be like the angels of heaven. Because if we had children in eternity in the new heaven and new earth, well, they potentially could not, uh, might not receive Christ as their Savior and be unrighteous. And now we've got the whole problem all starting over again. So I, I think we will remember our earthly relationships in the next life and, so we, and have special relationships with them for all of eternity, even while we are the bride of Christ.
1: What's fun is to be a—I've done a lot of counseling. So I get people that will say things in my office they'd never say in a Sunday school class or in a worship setting. And one time a couple was there, and somehow she brought up this passage about, in heaven they'll neither marry nor be married. And this guy looked at her and looked at me, and he said, What? Are you kidding me? There's no sex in heaven? And everybody kind of sat there for a moment, and I cannot tell you how the Lord did this, but out of my mouth comes this very simple thing. It will be even better in heaven than anything you've ever experienced here, so don't even worry about it. And for him— Whatever that was, that was satisfying, but I think we have a tendency to read from this life what the benefits are in the life to come, and the life to come is a billion times better than anything we've experienced here, and there's nothing to worry about.
2: I love that passage in Corinthians, and Paul says, The eye has not seen, nor has the ear heard, nor has it entered into the minds of man the wonders that God has in store for us. Tom you're absolutely right. It's going to be even greater than what we can imagine. Oh, that's amazing.
0: All right, let's say Peter, one of Jesus' most devout disciples, right? And yet Peter got a pretty harsh rebuke from Jesus when he said said to him, get behind me, Satan. So without, I guess, knowing it, Peter was speaking for Satan?
1: Well, Satan was certainly flowing through him to tempt Jesus to avoid what the Father had called him to do how many times does Satan do that through us? How many things come out of our mouth that later on we regret or that we're caught off guard by our own attitude? And that's pretty normal for human beings. Jesus was rebuking Satan. I don't think he was rebuking Peter as much as he was rebuking Satan in that moment. But here's the bottom line. When that happens in our life, the first thing we ought to do when it comes out of our mouth is stop, call on the name of Jesus and repent because it is too easy for people to carry that kind of language or belief system or negative attitude right to their graves. Even among Christians, I see this, and it drives me crazy because the goal is to speak like Jesus and recognize what's going on. When I deal with people in counseling, I don't see them as Satan. I see them as people that are being influenced by Satan or by the demons. I see them as misunderstanding the Word of God, but I also see them as people created in the image of God who he still loves and wants to redeem.
2: That's a really good perspective in the sense that who is he truly rebuking? Remember the context of this passage. It's in Matthew 16, and Peter is basically Jesus began to explain to them that he had to go to Jerusalem and suffer all these things, and uh, and be and be killed, and and raised to life. And Peter says basically, "Never, Lord, uh, this shall never happen." So that was. The immediate context of the passage, where Jesus then turns to Peter and says, "Get behind me, Satan! You are a stumbling block to me." So, yes, while the words came out of Peter's mouth, and I, I don't think Peter was indwelt by Satan or, 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 you know, possessed in some way, shape, or form. I think what's happening is is this influence that Tom was just talking about. This is what Satan wants. Satan doesn't want. Uh, God's plan to come to fruition. He was trying to destroy the Christ at his birth. He was trying to tempt the Christ at the start of his ministry. And now he's trying to thwart God's plan uh, for for Jesus uh, and what's ahead of him. And and that's what Satan does. He tries to block what God is doing.
0: Mm -hmm. All right. Some outstanding questions coming in. Let me know what's on your mind uh, today, 877-933-2484 I I was going to say what was on your mind last night because maybe that's when you started thinking about it and now today you can ask the question so again 877-933-2484 after a short break we'll be right back with more Guide Talk extended version today we're going to go a little extra uh, top of the hour be right back my power panel today, Jeff Berdorn and Pastor Tom Parrish. Right before the break, we were talking about when Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Satan, get behind me. And we were just talking during the break because we couldn't stop. And that was about... So uh, Peter must have been a little bit surprised by this. Um, Peter was probably talking about things of the world and its earthly values. And Jesus's purpose was the way of the cross and redemption for all mankind. So. Uh, was Satan putting words in Peter's mouth? Is that something he would he would do with us today? Or is that some kind of... Uh, uh, he, he wasn't
1: possessed in any way, was he? No. How many times have you and I said something? We didn't mean it the way it came out, but people interpreted it quite differently. And in <laughs> some cases, they were absolutely right.
0: Yeah, Tom, I have a radio show like every day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Okay, I didn't want to bring up any names.
0: <laughs> no, no, I'm just saying. I mean, I, I of pray course every day that I what I say is you know completely biblical. So I don't know. It's uh, I make mistakes. I think it's made- kind of
2: like when when we sometimes say things and it's you hear yourself say something and you go, "Wow, that's the world talking." Right. And it's like, okay. oh, that was so worldly. That was so, you know, the world, the flesh and the devil are influencing on one side and and God and his spirit are influencing us on the other side. And we can choose which ones we follow. Right. It's it's kind of like the old picture of, you know, one angel on one shoulder. And this is now this is not in the Bible, but, you know, the, one angel on one shoulder and another angel on another shoulder is this, you know, do it. No, don't do it. No, do it. Don't do it. <laughs> And it's the same way. You, we, have, we are influenced by the world and the flesh and the devil, and we get to choose. Remember our free will discussion from earlier? We get to choose which voice we're going to listen to. Now, Peter, I don't know. Don't give Peter a hard time. If I'm with the Lord and I didn't understand his plan and he's being threatened, uh, I think Peter's heart was in the right place in, in the sense that he was just trying to protect the Lord. He didn't fully understand this plan, even though Jesus just told him in verse 21 that I have to go up to this Jerusalem, suffer these things, die, and, and be raised to life again. He just tells him, but he didn't understand it.
1: Well, clear up through the Garden of Gethsemane. The old idea of the Messiah, who is the one that would kick out the Romans and put you know, himself on the throne and rule over Israel, was still prominent. And I see that in the apostles. That's still there to a degree. Jesus has been trying to correct that all the way along, but that was what Satan was tempting Jesus to do, even back when the temptations. Hey, you don't have to do it this way. Here's a better way to do it, and you can sit on the throne, and the world will belong to you. So I think Jesus recognized the source, but again, he basically went back, and look what he did. He redeemed Peter and all the believers.
2: And you look at the... Throughout the Gospels, you see this idea that that's what their understanding was—that the Messiah was going to come and establish His kingdom. So, so you have the woman who says, "Put Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, put one son on your left side, one on on your right hand." Uh, the thief on the cross, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, even at His resurrection, right? The the last question the disciples had for him was basically, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And so they did not understand, because the kingdom is talked about quite often in the Old Testament. That was their understanding. And they missed the other parts of the Old Testament that said the Messiah first had to come to suffer to pay for the sins of the world, then return in glory to his, and establish his kingdom.
0: Nicely done. All right. When did we go uh, from, in the Lord's Prayer, from forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors to forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us? When did that change happen?
2: Tom, what does the Lutheran church do? What does your church do, say?
1: Um, we Actually, it's used differently in every church. It used to be pretty common with trespasses. A lot more of them are using debts or something like that, it it, it varies uh, from church to church and how it's done. If we forgive us our trespasses, and we forgive those who trespass against us, is as close as I can see in the original Greek to getting toward the idea of our sinfulness and our need to forgive other sinners. But I think a lot of it goes back to some of the translations, and we need to be wise about that because it doesn't just mean sin. It means more than that when it talks about trespasses.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's our sin debt, our sin trespass.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, I think it's just an English word that is describing the basically the same concept. But I grew up saying debt, so that's the one that's right.
1: Well, of course. That's <laughs> yeah. how, how it's worked for me, too. <laughs> yeah.
2: All right, you guys live in your little world.
1: Okay.
0: Uh, <laughs> here's one that will require some counsel and some prayer. My brother-in-law's mother has cancer throughout her whole body, and mm-hmm. on Monday— uh, the doctor said she probably had about a week left. She believes in God, but I don't think she knows Jesus as her Savior. I don't know if she's ever uh, read the Bible. However, is there a, a book or a place you would suggest her reading that would impress upon her the need to call on Jesus as her Savior and also help her find some peace? She's very angry right now, and she's
1: only 54 years old. Well, I'll be honest. I wish I could sit down and talk to her because I've been with many of these people. Uh, usually when somebody's in that shape, they're not in the mood for reading. <laughs> you know, they, they just don't want to read much. They're just bitter or angry or angry at life. And what I like to do is sit down, let them tell me about their bitterness and about their anger, and then begin to talk to them about what would they really like, and is that achievable? Yeah, and, I'd like to live longer. Uh, yeah, you'd like to live longer. Yeah, i well, i longer. And I'm there to talk to you about, do you want to live eternally? And and let me show you what Jesus said. And we begin to work and go around that. And for my for my sense, I have seen atheists come to faith on their deathbed. I have seen other people who heard the gospel and still rejected it. So there, I can't guarantee what will happen. But the biggest thing she needs to read right now is the heart of other Christians who come to her and say, we love you. We're here to share the love of Jesus with you. We're not going away.
2: I, I... Totally agree with that. I think there's a lot of resources out there that would describe uh, how to be saved. Um, there's hundreds, thousands of books that have been written on on this subject. Uh, but I think right now she needs people that love her to come alongside of her and to and for them to testify to her directly the good news that God loves her with an endless love beyond what she can even imagine that he demonstrated his love for her in this while we she was yet a sinner christ came and died for her and scripture says that now if you confess with your mouth that he is lord and believe in your heart that he's risen from the grave you will be saved and that life the earthly life may end but like tom said the eternal life never ends and that's the simple message of salvation
1: and eternity is already in her heart. So I would appeal to that, but I would do it very gently and I would listen. But the other thing is, I wouldn't do it as a five-minute exercise. I'd go and spend several hours with her one day, several hours the next day, and several hours the next day if I could mm-hmm. to see where this process goes. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, Tom, I would uh, ask you if you wouldn't mind to pray for her right now. Her name is Diane, and maybe this uh, this broadcast can be used as a as a place where Uh, they can start talking to her. I agree. We prayed for her
1: on on radio. Lord Jesus, stretch out your hand on Diane right now. You know her fears. You know how you created her. You know how you planted eternity in her heart. Bring that forward, Lord, to the very front of her mind and her spirit. And Lord, enable her to begin to hear the Christians around her who bring her the love of Jesus. And Lord, we pray in this last week of her life, if this is that last week, that she will meet you in some very real way, whether it's through a dream, a vision, through somebody sharing the gospel, whatever happens, so that she will die in peace when that time comes, but she will live eternally. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Wow.
0: Thank, you so, thank you so much. Uh, how important it is to uh, be ready to respond to people at that time of, of life when you are f- facing the end of it and to have uh, the confidence and the courage to, and to have the words to let the Holy Spirit lead you in the words that you bring to that that bedside.
1: That's a good word. And I encourage pastors especially, don't go there to just talk with the family, the sons and the daughters. Spend time with the dying person, even if they're in a coma. You read scripture, you talk to them, you reassure them, you hold their hand, you let them know Jesus loves them.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: All right. We're going to take uh, a little break coming up here, but we're going to continue Guy Talk uh, for another 30 minutes, which I'm looking forward to, which means we have plenty of time for more of your questions. And there's still a number of questions I want to get to when we come back from a, a break, but I also want to invite you to send your questions over. Maybe you've heard something in this hour that you want more clarification on or you want to have us talk about it some more. You can send it over, eight seven seven nine three three. Two four eight four, and after uh, an extended version of guide talk today, um, my guest at uh, five thirty is going to be Ron Block, who is uh, truly one of the premier uh, banjo players in the country. And he's the banjo player for Allison Krauss and Union Station, and he also has written a, a book called Abiding Dependence. It's a forty-day uh, devotional, and it's really quite lovely. And uh, he's a very brilliant musician and has an incredible heart for the Lord. So he's my guest coming up at 5.30. Just to give you a heads up, uh, you know I like uh, bluegrass music and banjo music. So I'm going to give you a chance to not listen if you don't like it. So there you go. We'll take a break and be right back with more guy Talk. My power panel today is Pastor Tom Parrish and Jeff Ferdorn. Be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support.